All right, let's open our Bibles this evening to the book of Revelation, chapter 4. A week ago, we looked at um, a chapter outline of the entire book of Revelation. And I gave to you a printed copy of that and asked you to keep it in your Bible and to um, refer to that when we get together here this week. So if you have that chapter outline uh, in your Bible, you might want to pull that out as well. And you'll notice um, we have on the left column the chapter numbers and on the, the right sort of or middle to right what, what it is that happens in those chapters. Notice again that um, essentially chapter 6 to chapter 19 uh, are dealing with the tribulation period, those seven years. And we've already uh, done some extensive study in chapters 1, 2, and 3. And we've studied the uh, seven letters. But remember that the whole book of Revelation was written to all of the seven churches. Not just the seven letters. Uh, but the entire 22 chapter book was written essentially for those seven churches. It would have been sent to the first church. Probably the church of Ephesus. They would have read it through. Poured over it numerous times. Made meticulous copies. And then sent it on to the next church. Which would have done the same send it to the third and the fourth and so on till all seven churches had it. And the uh, seven churches remind us strangely of churches we have today. We can look around and we can see churches that almost mirror those seven churches that the Lord wrote to. Also, we seem to be able to look back now over 2,000 years of Earth's history and we seem to be able to see, roughly speaking, um, periods of time where uh, the, the, the church at large, if I can use that expression, is reflected by each of those seven churches. Now, whether that was in God's design, I don't know. God usually doesn't miss a trick, right? Everything has been carefully planned out. And so it stands to reason. But for sure, those were seven real churches 2,000 years ago. And they sure have their kissing cousins around today. We've got churches that are very doctrinally correct, and yet the love of Jesus is missing. We've got churches today that are suffering for the Lord. We have churches today that love him immensely. We have churches today that seem to be in name only, and uh, they're dead on the inside, or they've kicked Jesus out um, again, as it were. Now we come to chapters 4 and 5, and now the scene changes. No longer are we dealing with things on earth. Now, up to heaven we go. And so, um, I've been looking this over and looking it over. And I'm, I was thinking maybe of trying to get through chapter 4 and 5 to, tonight. But I think there's just too much goodness in chapter 4 to, uh, to skim uh, at this point. So, we'll do a little bit of skimming later. But I thought we would just uh, concentrate on chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4. So let's uh, begin with a word of prayer and ask the Lord to bless our study together. Shall we close our eyes once more and bow our heads in prayer? And now, Heavenly Father, as we uh, want to get into the, the chapter of this book, we ask that you would please be our teacher tonight and have the Holy Spirit open the eyes of our understanding and, and help us to, to be excited about the prospect of being in heaven one day and the glory of it 
And Lord, we consider our, our lives, our homes, how we live for you hour by hour and day by day. And uh, we seem often like we're not ready. It seems, Father, as if there's still much, much work to be done in our hearts. Please help us tonight to grow closer to you. Please increase us in faith and love and obedience and worship and sacrifice and service. Lord, help us to be more the, the children, the sons and daughters of God that you've called us to be. So bless us now in our study. In Jesus' name, we ask it. Amen. Well, um, as you know, yesterday, uh, the White House rolled out Trump's peace plan. And so um, I, I pulled out the news event there. I, I look at the news usually on, on the Internet. And it's kind of handy because you can do word searches real quick. You can find out things fast if you know how. And so um, I pulled out this big page on the, uh, the peace plan. And the first thing I did was I did a search for the number seven to see if it's a seven-year peace plan. And apparently it's not. It's a four-year peace plan. But remember, that can be modified because uh, he did say that it's uh, open-ended. So who knows what will happen. And I looked it over, and uh, sure enough, it had a lot of uh, things there pro-Israel, and some things there also for the Palestinians. Uh, Israel's, uh, uh, the city of Jerusalem is to be recognized as the sovereign capital of Israel. And um, he's suggesting a portion of the eastern part of, of Israel uh, for the Palestinians, and that they would set up a, uh, an embassy in that, and that would be their capital. And he talked about other parts of the land um, the West Bank and the Golan Heights and things like that. And he had a map and so on. Well, right away, of course, many of the uh, Palestinian leaders, they just rejected it. Said that the devil's not in the details, the devil's in the headlines. They said, this is, this is no good. This, this is horrible. This is terrible. We don't, we don't accept it at all. And meanwhile, the Israelis are saying, oh, this is an opportunity too good you know, to, uh, to pass over. We have to jump on this bandwagon. And then I thought, hmm, I wonder what's going to happen. Well, this morning, I'm looking at the news, and I saw an article where a number of the Muslim countries around Israel are wanting the Palestinians to go for this. So isn't that interesting? I mean, every day, just new, new things are happening. If this is the seven, going to be the seven-year peace plan, I don't know. But uh, it, it's the closest thing we've seen, isn't it? And uh, Bible-believing Christians, I think, are, a lot of them are sitting on the edge of their seat. And they're thinking, wow, look at this. This is quite something. Already, Israel's all set. If they get the uh, green light, they're ready to build the temple. Will they build it uh, where the Dome of the Rock is, that Muslim worship building there? Will, will that be torn down? And will they, they put up a, a temple in its place? They might. I've also read um, uh, other reports where they're saying that the actual uh, site of Solomon's temple is not where the Dome of the Rock is. It's actually off to one side in area that the Jews already own. Whether that's true, I don't know. 
Uh, it's just a lot of speculation, but it's exciting because it means that, uh, boy, it could be closer than we think. And for sure, we know this for sure. There's few things that we know for sure, but this we know for sure, that we are the closest generation to the coming of Jesus in the last 2,000 years. Isn't that right? We're on the, the front seat. We're on the bleeding edge of this. And the Lord could easily come. Uh, how much worse does the world have to get in order for Jesus to come back? Listen, Jesus could have come back any time in the last 2,000 years. Nothing has to happen and nothing has to be fulfilled in order for Jesus to come back. At the right time, he'll come back. And uh, the pieces are going to fall together in uh, God's timetable. Chapter 4 pictures for us, I believe, the rapture. Now, in verse 1, Notice, after this, I looked and behold, a door was opened in heaven. Here's John, the apostle John on earth, and he sees a door opening in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was as it were of a trumpet. There's the trump right there. Talking with me, which said, come up hither and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. I was saved back in 1975. And in that year, I can't remember the month, but in that first year, I had a dream. And uh, I knew so little about uh, what the Bible teaches on various subjects, but I did hear that Jesus was coming back. And I remember waking up one morning with this dream and my heart was pounding. It was a, a dream of Jesus return to earth. Now, it, it's actually not very uh, biblical because I can remember being in an open field and uh, looking at the clouds, and this square panel slid back. Now, this is not how it's going to happen, okay? This was just in my dream. I don't know what I had the night before, what I ate the night before I went to bed there, but this was my dream, and I remember it to this day. And I was standing in an open field, and this large square panel of the clouds just slid back, and the face of Jesus as portrayed by that artist, what's his name, Holman, with the, where Jesus is standing on the door and knocking, you know, you know the, the, the picture I'm talking about? Anyhow, it, it's a picture of Jesus and that, because I'd seen that, and that, that was the face, that was, it was just his head, it wasn't any body, just his head, and started to descend. And I remember waking up and my heart was, pounding and I thought this is it this is it this is it and I never forgot that dream well I think my heart's going to pound when Jesus comes back I really do I think that when that trumpet sounds and the first you know few nanoseconds or whatever it'll take you know we'll be confused what's happening and then we'll realize there he is and we're being ushered up there with him and I think our hearts are going to pound I think that our, our voices will, uh, will, will break forth in, in praise and shouts and tears. And I think it's going to be an incredibly emotional time when we see Jesus. Well, here we have John on earth looking up and he hears this, this trumpet sound. It was a voice that sounded like a trumpet. Now, if you look back at chapter 1, and verse 10, you'll find at the very beginning, John is on the Isle of Patmos. 
And verse 10, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet. And here it was the voice of Jesus saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. Now we know that 1 Corinthians chapter 15 says, In a moment in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. The order of events, as I understand it, is that the dead in Christ who've gone on before us, they're, they're in heaven. They will be brought back and reunited with a resurrection body. And how that's going to happen, only God knows. But that will happen. And they'll be raised. Then we will be raised with them. Our bodies, those of us who are still alive, our bodies will be changed. And so the bodies that we've brought with us to church tonight will be changed. And all of those aches and pains and those problems will be a thing of the past. No more headaches. No more eye strains, blurred vision, nothing, no runny noses, no arthritis, no rheumatism, no asthma, no diabetes, no coronavirus. You know, nothing. Our bodies are going to be changed, made like unto his glorious body. How this will happen? Don't know. Don't have to know. You know, sometimes when my car is sick, I take it to the mechanic and he fixes it. How did he fix it? I don't know. But he did it. I just got to pay his bill. How the Lord is going to change our bodies, we, we don't know. But that's all right. We don't fully understand how he created the world and all that, that is in it in six days, do we? There's so much we don't understand. How is it that God can hear the prayers of all the people all over the world at the same time? You know, I get two people talking to me at the same time and, and my mind kind of goes into a mind freeze sometimes. How does God do it? Don't know. But aren't you glad that he is God and he can do these things? And so First uh, Thessalonians 4 says, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. We don't have the time to study it, but if we were to go back to the Old Testament and study the Feast of Trumpets found in Leviticus 23, we'd find that uh, what, would, what was happening, it was the gathering of Israel together. And we find that parallel between the Old Testament truths and the New Testament truths. We find that parallel so often. The Lord comes in the air with the sound of the trumpet and he gathers us to him. And so verse 2 in chapter 4, And immediately I was in the spirit and behold, a throne was set in heaven and one sat on the throne. So immediately he was in heaven. Now, interesting thing about the church is that the church is mentioned uh, about 16 times in the first three chapters of Revelation. But now it disappears. There's no more mention of the church now. Uh, right through till chapter uh, 18, till chapter 19, in fact. And of course, these chapters deal with the, uh, the tribulation. We conclude that the church is raptured. Now, I know a lot of uh, people in the world today, and they do websites and they write books, and they don't believe in a rapture. 
Well, that's fine. They don't have to if they don't want to. The rapture was a mystery that was revealed by Jesus to Paul. And he even calls it that. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. He's talking about Christians. That's in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He mentions it again in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. That's our teaching on the rapture. has nothing to do with Matthew 24 and 25. Those chapters know nothing of the rapture. Those chapters speak of the seven-year tribulation time and particularly the, the, the latter half of it. And so here he's immediately in heaven. And um, the conclusion here is that uh, the, the church is gone off of earth. If you don't mind a little speculation, it seems that John is almost representing the church when he is taken instantly, immediately in heaven. Now, while in heaven, John sees several people and he lists them. He describes them. Verse three, the first person he sees is God, the father. And he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and sardine stone. And there was a rainbow round about the throne in sight, like unto an emerald. And so God himself is gloriously displayed here, gloriously displayed here. 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 Gloriously displayed Sometimes we say, well, what's heaven going to be like? Oh, they say there's streets of gold. Well, where do we get that from? We get that from the scriptures. And here in chapter four, we've got a tremendous vision, an idea of what heaven is like. And the first person that John sees is not Aunt Matilda. The first person that John sees is not old Zacharias, the priest who fathered John the Baptist. He doesn't see Moses or Elijah. He sees God. And, uh, you know, that, that's so important a truth. Some people talk about wanting to go to heaven to see their mama or their papa. Nothing wrong with that. If mom and dad are in heaven, of course. Nothing wrong with that. But what makes heaven heaven is the presence of the Lord. If the Lord's not in heaven, why go there? Why would we want to? We want to be with the Lord. And so here, John gets up to heaven and he gets to see God. Glorious revelation of God here. And his sure promise with the uh, rainbow there. These days, you talk about a rainbow, you have to be careful what you're talking about. But here in the scripture here, it's a reference, of course, to God and his eternal promises. Now, um, these emeralds appear to be somewhat in green color. And scientists claim that the color green is the most pleasing and gentle to the eyes. I know we, we love to talk about the green earth. We like to talk about that as being fresh and healthy and alive. And here, the throne of God is this brilliant green inviting us to, to approach near and we're told that in Scripture, to go near to God. In Hebrews 4, let us therefore come boldly under the throne of grace. And in just a little while, we want to do that. We want to get on our knees and we want to pray. Now, um, in verse 5, uh, out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings. See that? And voices. They're coming from the throne. As we go through Revelation, we'll see this more than once. And 
with the presence of God Almighty. You have these lightnings and thunderings and voices. If you were to read through the book of Psalms, you will read that uh, the thunder is God's voice speaking. Do you ever think that? I know we don't get a lot of thunder out here on the coast, do we? Uh, Other parts of the world get a lot more thunder. We rarely seem to get a, a good display of lightning. It's not often we see lightning out here. When we were in Ontario, we used to see a lot more lightning and we used to hear the thunder a lot. It used to scare the dogs. All the dogs, you know, would run for cover under the bed or something, you know, when it started to thunder. Boom. Um, But uh, the psalmist would say the voice of the Lord. And here we are up in heaven, this vision, this picture, and there's lightnings and there's thunderings and voices coming out of the throne. And this, I believe, is a display of the awesome power of God, which is just another reminder that we need to come humbly to the throne. We cannot barge right in there as if we were a somebody. Folks, we are a nothing. If you want to do something good, go home and get yourself a little three by five card or approximately and find yourself the smallest speck of dust that you can find and put it on the card and put a piece of scotch tape over it and write the words, this is me in the sight of God and put a little arrow to that tiny speck of dust And set that up in your prayer closet or wherever it is that you meet with the Lord as a reminder how awesome and incredibly majestic God is. Now, to compare us to a speck of dust, I don't know exactly how biblical that is. I know that uh, our frame is dust. We're told that in in the scriptures. But in the sight of Almighty God, we don't know. We don't know what big is. We think we got an idea what big is. First time I ever saw the Pacific Ocean. I'd never seen the ocean before. And then when I was in my early 20s, I got to see the Pacific Ocean. And I remember my jaw dropping. I'd never seen, I've seen pictures of it, but I'd never actually seen it and smelt it and, and heard it and felt it. And when I stood there and I saw it, and it was just a new thing for me. I'd never seen this before. Some people grow up, you know, right there at the ocean. It's nothing to them. But for someone who's never seen it before. But even that is nothing. It's minuscule. There are things in this universe that are so big, we don't have words for them. God is bigger. Here is the vision that John had. And in verse 6, There was a sea of glass. You see that before the throne? A sea of glass like unto crystal. It's a very calm and stable picture here. Now Solomon, when he built his temple, he built this big gigantic laver out front to hold water. And it was so big, they called it a sea, S-E-A. It was so incredibly huge, this great big brass thing. And they called it a sea. Solomon's sea was this giant, bowl, this laver of water. And it pictured, I believe it's a picture of the word of God. Therefore, the sea of glass here may represent the word of God. But let's go back to verse 4 because now we are introduced to the second uh, person or people actually in verse 4. And round about the throne were four and twenty seats. And upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting clothed in white raiment, and they had on their heads 
crowns of gold. Well, someone says, who are these people? These 24 elders, who are they? Some people say that they were angels. Some say that they were cherubims or angelic beings. Other people say, no, they're redeemed people from the earth. They're redeemed men. Now, they're called elders. The word elder refers to a senior person having wisdom enough to be able to be a leader. That's the idea of an elder with wisdom and leadership. Now, if you just look at chapter 5 and verse 9, it tells us a little more about these elders. It says, And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God. Notice that. Hast redeemed us to God by thy blood. Look at this. Out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. And so it seems to me that these elders must be men, must be humans. But still, who are they? Well, there are those that say that they may be the 24 elders appointed by King David in 1 Chronicles 24. Others say that they may be the 12 sons of Jacob uh, and uh, possibly the 12 apostles of Christ, Judas being replaced by Matthias. I guess we won't know for sure until we get home to heaven, and it's certainly nothing to get into an argument over, but it makes the most sense to me that these are are men saved out of the earth. In Ephesians 2.14, it says, For he is our peace, who hath made both one, and hath broken down the middle wall of petition between us, Jews and Gentiles, so it may very well have some representation of Jews and Gentiles. It says that they're clothed in white raiment and having golden crowns on their heads. That is typical of the saints, not of angelic creatures. Now John moves now into verse 5 to the third person. Um, And in verse 5, he says at the end, And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And so we've been introduced to these seven spirits before. This is not the first time we've seen them. But he sees seven spirits of God. If you look back at chapter 1 and look at verse 4, we have John to the seven churches which are in Asia. Grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come. Pause for a minute. That's worship. You will, you will see that in the book of Revelation, that when they worship God, this is a phrase that they use to worship God. O oh God, you who were and is and is to come, or were and are and is to come. But this is a way in which God is worshipped. Just interesting. Uh, but he goes on to say, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne. And so they are connected with deity. The seven spirits are connected with deity. And we believe it's a reference to the Holy Spirit. Look at chapter 3 and verse 1. And unto the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God. There it is again. And look at chapter 5, if you would please. And verse 6. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and in the four beasts, 
And in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. And I guess just to make a long story short, uh, the best explanation that uh, I've seen, and, and I, I believe it, this is the omnipresence of the Holy Spirit having the seven eyes. He sees everything. He's everywhere. That's, that's um, like omniscience. It's uh, omnipresence. It's a reference to deity. And so I think we have here the third person of the, uh, the Trinity. Now we get to verse 6 and we see the fourth uh, person. I'm using the word person in a generic sense. Chapter 4 and verse 6. And before the throne there was a sea of glass like unto crystal. And in the midst of the throne and round about the throne were four beasts full of eyes before and behind. And so here in verse 6 he sees four beasts. Now normally we would think of a beast as something large and usually wild, untamable, perhaps some uh, animal bloodthirsty with big teeth or something that causes harm to humans. However, a beast is also a name for an animal that we are not familiar with. Nowhere do these beasts uh, tear into humans. Nowhere do these beasts cause uh, destruction and harm. And so we infer from this that there's simply animals um, that we are not familiar with. Something strange to us. And John, looking upon these, not knowing maybe what else to call them, obviously under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, referred to them as beasts. Now we get to verse 7 and we have a description of these beasts. And so it says the first beast was like a lion. And the second beast, now, by the way, in your Bible, you might want to do this. I like to do this sort of thing in my Bible. I underline the word first. I like to, I like to make notes on the page that will summarize things for me and help the page to, to speak to me. Uh, sometimes uh, when we look at the scriptures, we, we, we go through them and we figure out what things are and we don't make any notes. And then a month later, six months later, we come back and we say, now what were those things again? And we scratch our head. And it takes us a bunch of time to try and figure them out again. And it's just a suggestion, you might want to do this, uh, is begin marking your Bible. Underline the word first, second, third, and fourth in verse 7. So we have a lion, we have a calf, we have the face of a man, and we have uh, like a flying eagle here. Now, verse 8 says the four beasts had each of them six wings. This is another part of the description. Back in Isaiah chapter 6, it says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Remember that? Anyhow, there's these three seraphim. And the seraphim, or seraph, yeah, seraphim, I guess is how you pronounce it, these uh, are, are described as having six wings. Now, as far as I know, there's nowhere else in the scriptures that we have any other kind of description of these six-winged creatures. 
But these here in uh, uh, chapter 4 all have six wings. And so it's quite possible that they're the same. They're the same. And uh, they're full of eyes as well. That's what it says in verse 8. They not only have six wings, but they're full of eyes. They're able to see in all directions at once. You know, scientists um, tell us that the compound eye that uh, a bee has, those big round things, or a, a housefly, a common housefly has compound eyes, and each eye might have a thousand little eyes on it. And they're sensors that can detect movement and light and darkness, and it enables the little bug to be able to see in all directions. That's why if you've ever tried to sneak up on a fly, no matter what angle you come from, they see you coming. Off they go. I learned in Bible college how to swat flies. Imagine learning of all things in a Bible college. I learned it from one of my dorm mates. And he was from uh, northern Ontario, so he was well-versed in flies and all kinds of things. And he explained to me, when a fly lands on, on your knee or lands on the table, you don't try and hit it like that. What you do, I don't know if I should be teaching you this. You should go to Bible college and learn this yourself. But what you do is you keep your hands on a bit of an angle, and then very quickly you do this motion. You come up on it because the fly will sense the motion on the sides and go up. And then the next thing you do is this. And go wash your hands in case the fly had coronavirus. You never know where that fly's been. So be careful. I shouldn't be uh, telling you these things, but they're funny. Well, we are not told about these beasts. We are not told exactly what they represent, but they must be some various type of created spirit being created by God, such as God created the angels. He created the seraphim and the cherubim. And uh, whatever these are, quite possibly seraphim, whatever these are, God created them. Now, theologians suggest that seraphim are the uh, bodyguards around the throne. Whether that's true or not, I don't know, but it, it could be that God has, you know, created certain six-winged, amazing, created spiritual beings that look like beasts, and these things protect the throne. Possibly the protection is not so much for God as it is for us. You know, uh, if someone gets too close, maybe it's not healthy for them, and so these things are there to keep them away. I don't know. But uh, there are things in heaven that uh, maybe we'll only understand when we get there. Now, something interesting in verse 8 about these uh, six-winged beasts is watch this. They rest not day or night. They've got a full-time job, 24 hours a day. And here it is. They're saying, holy, holy, holy. Doesn't that sound like Isaiah chapter 6? Huh? Holy, holy, holy. One for each, one holy for each member of the Holy Trinity. How about that? Father, Son, Holy Spirit, holy, holy, holy. Folks, we serve a thrice holy God. This is so important. Then, Lord God Almighty. Again, there's another triplet. Lord, God, 
and Almighty. Could that be a reference to the Trinity? And watch, here it is, look. Read it out loud with me, this last portion of verse 8. Read it out loud. Which was and is and is to come. Now, where have we seen that before? This is part and parcel of worship of Almighty God. You want to get some heavenly tip? Underline those words. Next time you get alone with God, you get on your face before God and you pray, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. And you are speaking heaven's language is what you're doing. Because this is exactly the, uh, the words of, of the, these, um, these four beasts as they worship Almighty God. They know what they're doing. They've been created for this purpose. There's a little tip there that you and I should take advantage of. So we come now to verse 9. And it says, And when those beasts give glory and honor and thanks to him that sat on the throne who liveth forever and ever. And you see, here's their job. We're looking at the job of these four beasts. It's the worship of Almighty God. Their job appears to be giving glory and honor and thanks to God. Now, don't miss this. This is important. This is key. If you're here tonight and you know Christ is your Savior and you expect to be in heaven one day, then before you get to heaven, here's a tip, an important tip. You and I ought to be involved every day with the worship of Almighty God. Just as these four beasts in heaven, whose full-time, 24-hour-a-day, seven-day-a-week job it is to worship Almighty God and give Him glory and honor and thanks, so ought you and I to give glory and honor and thanks to Almighty God. Folks, this is something that we need to learn. Children are not born with good manners, are they? Those of you who've had kids and raised them, you know that kids have to be taught how to say please. They have to be taught the word thank you. They have to be taught good manners because they're not born that way. And that's one of the jobs of us parents, isn't it? To lovingly, patiently, you know, without strangling them, teach them good manners and teach them how to communicate and See, they're born and all they know is themselves. And as they grow up, that's all they think about is themselves. And the job of us parents, one of the jobs, besides feeding them, clothing them, is to teach them, hey, there's other people in the world beside you, fella. And especially when the other children come along to start showing a little bit of uh, family love one to another. Otherwise, if, if you do nothing, the kid grows up totally self-centered. Everything revolves around me. If it's not me, it's no good. Here we are, born again. How long you've been saved? How many years you've been saved? Some of us have been saved decades. Well, how good are we at worship? How proficient, how understanding are we that when we get into the presence of Almighty God, we need to adore Him and worship Him, and give Him glory and honor. You've got language right there in front of you. It tells you how to do it. Now John goes 
back and he describes those 24 elders here in verse 10. The four and 20 elders fall down before him that sat on the throne and worship him that liveth forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne. Now, what are these 24 elders doing? Worshiping God. That's what they're doing. They're worshiping Almighty God. Wow. When the 24 elders hear the four beasts crying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. When those 24 elders hear this worship language, well, they want to get involved. They do their part. They fall down before God. And it says here, they, uh, they cast their crowns before the throne. They are giving their crown to God. Giving is an act of worship. Worship, as you know, is first mentioned in the Bible when Abraham was called upon to offer his son Isaac to God as a sacrifice, a living sacrifice. Do you remember that? And so they got all together. Abraham got his son, who would be in his teen years by then, a teenager. And he got the wood and the fire and the donkey and a couple of servants. And they went a three-day journey. And they lift up their eyes and there's Mount Moriah, the place where God had called them to. Abraham turns to the servants and says, you fellas stay here. The boy and I, we are going to go and worship. And we'll come again. Very first mention of worship in the Bible is when Abraham went and gave his son Isaac to God. So many Christian parents refuse to give their children to God. Now, God doesn't call upon us to plunge a knife into the uh, bodies of our children. There's nothing like that. But God calls upon us to give our children daily into God's hands. The safest place for anything is in God's hands. God can look after his property better than anyone. God can look after those kids better than any parent. The best parent on, on earth cannot look after those kids as good as God can. And God always does the right thing. Always. He makes no mistakes. And he calls upon parents to lovingly place their children into God's hands. Whether your children are still young or whether they're growing up and they've moved out and they've started homes of their own, God still calls upon us to lovingly give our children and how about our grandchildren into God's hands for his purpose. You know, really, when you think of it, the best thing you can do is give God everything you have, everything you've been blessed with. Many people won't do that because they're afraid of loss. They're afraid God's going to take something. They're afraid God's going to hurt them somehow. And what you and I need to do is we need to lay everything on God's altar. There's an amazing story. It's a true story of a pastor. And down in the States someplace, I should remember his name. Ah, he was in the New York State. Sorry. Pre-senior moment, I guess. I forgot the pastor's name, but there was a young girl in his congregation who was going blind and the doctors 
many, many years ago. And the doctors told her that uh, she's going blind and she doesn't have much time left. And she was scared. And she, uh, she wanted to talk with her pastor. And he came around to the home and visited with her. And she said, Pastor, I'm so scared. God's taking away my eyesight. He's taking my eyesight. What am I going to do? And the pastor said, don't let God take your eyesight. Don't let God take your eyesight. She said, what do you mean? He said, give him your eyesight. Give him your eyesight. Give it to him before he takes it. The safest thing for anything is in the hands of God. You say, what happened? Well, the girl actually went blind. The little girl went blind. But she had such sweet peace in her heart. She was no longer anxious or worried or upset because she put her eyesight in God's hands. This is a form of worship. Have you ever thought about how precious your eyes are? None of us would want to lose our eyes or our ears. Would you put the most precious things that you know of, would you put those things into God's hands? Would you cast your crown at his feet? That's what the 24 elders did as they worshipped him. And then if you look at verse 11, here's what they said when they worshipped him. Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive. And we'll look at the rest of it in a moment. But thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive. And that's true, folks. God is the only one worthy to receive. Listen to this. Your health. Your creature comforts. The money you have in the bank. Your future. Your happiness. Your eyes, your ears, your hands, your feet your legs, your life, your husband or your wife, your children, your mother and father, your career, your home, everything, 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 all of the blessings you have, he is worthy to receive them. Everyone. You say, well, wait a minute. What if God takes something? Hey, that's good. That's something good. God never takes something by mistake. Sometimes he takes it only to give it back. But sometimes he takes it to give you more. To make room to give you more. That's what he did with Job. He took and then he gave him back twice as much. That's good to know. Look at it again, verse 11. Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive, here it is, glory and honor and power. For thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. Folks, you and I, we have been created for his pleasure. I have a dog. My dog's name is Charlie. Do you know why I have Charlie in the home? Do you think I have Charlie in the home for his pleasure? Well, he gets some benefit. 
But you know why I have Charlie in the home? For my pleasure. That's why I have Charlie in the home. For my pleasure. He doesn't even know it. Do you know why God created you? And do you know why God saved you? For his pleasure. How can we do anything less but worship him? Hmm? Now turn in your Bible, please, to the book of Psalms and find Psalm 148. And as soon as you have Psalm 148, I'd like to ask you to stand to your feet. Psalm 148. not very long. It's only 14 verses. And I'd like to ask you to read it out loud together with me. Psalm 148. Let's begin. Praise ye the Lord. Praise ye the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights. Praise ye him all his angels. Praise ye him all his hosts. Praise ye him sun and moon. Praise him all ye stars of light. Praise him, ye heavens of heavens, and ye waters that be above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded, and they were created. He hath also established them forever and ever. He hath made a decree which shall not pass. Praise the Lord from the earth, ye dragons and all deeps, fire and hail, snow and vapor, stormy wind fulfilling his word mountains and all hills, fruitful trees and all cedars, beasts and all cattle, creeping things and flying fowl, kings of the earth and all people, princes and all judges of the earth, both young men and maidens, old men and children. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is excellent. His glory is above the earth and heaven. He also exalteth the horn of his people, the praise of all his saints, even of the children of Israel, a people near unto him. Praise ye the Lord. Let's pray together.